Uh, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to uh, today's session uh, on the Bribery Act. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name's Chris Middleton. I'm in the employment group here at Chemlittle. Uh, presenting with me is Charlotte Hawkins from our corporate group. Um, I have to say, it, it's really um, amazing how much column images have been generated by the Bribery Act, which, when you get down to the nitty-gritty, is really quite a dry piece of legislation. Um, even the, the government's own guidance um, has quite a lot to say, and uh, some of it um, is perhaps descending into slightly towards sort of hyperbole and melodrama, dare I say it, as has a lot of the tabloid coverage. Um, just to give you a taste, uh, the, the government's guidance begins by saying bribery blights lives. Its immediate victims include firms that lose out unfairly. The wider victims are government and society undermined by a weakened rule of law and damaged social and economic development. At stake is the principle of free and fair competition, which stands diminished by each bribe offered or accepted. Well, we'll let you decide at the end of the session whether that's um, whether that's accurate or whether that's a bit melodramatic. Um, Charlotte and I will hopefully help you sort out uh, the bribery act wheat from the tabloid hyperbole chaff. Um, Charlotte is going to begin by looking at uh, the main offences under the act. I'll then have a look at uh, practical steps for complying with the Act and the uh, particular focus on corporate hospitality, which I know is an issue which particularly is exercising people. We'll then break for coffee and reconvene to look at a case study. I mentioned that there have been um, quite a lot of coal minches generated by um, the Bribery Act. Uh, two or three of the more um, sensible reports that caught my eye um, are these ones. The first one is a, a report um, following a survey that one in five UK managers would bribe for business, suggesting this isn't just a, a theoretical concern. And then, similarly, half of UK employees are unaware of their company's anti-bribery policy, which isn't just um, a matter of academic concern. That could be um, directly relevant to the question of whether um, an organisation is liable of a corporate offence. Um, and then... Another example of high-profile case that's um, been in the news recently, this is the allegation that two members of, of FIFA offered to sell their votes in support of countries bidding for the Football World Cup. So what does the Act actually say? I'm going to hand over to Charles to take a So yes, I'm just going to give you um, some background and introduction to the Act. So firstly, the Bribery Act will completely replace our existing anti-bribery laws. So our existing law is very fragmented and antiquated. As you can see, it dates back to the 1800s. So it's high time that we replaced our anti-bribery laws. So the Bribery Act is finally coming into force on the 1st of July 2011, so not long to go now. Um, the Bribery Act has... So our existing laws have received a lot of criticism in terms of um, being inconsistent with the OECD and for failing to result in successful prosecutions of alleged bribery. So, for example, the BAE Systems case. So, the new Bribery Act is intended to be very robust, and it is. It has a very wide scope. It will bring into force offences of bribing, being bribed, bribing a foreign public official, and the new corporate offence of failing to prevent bribery. It's also got a very wide jurisdictional reach. So it's very important to be aware that it's not just UK companies and UK individuals that need to take um, note of the Act. 
It's also other companies, overseas companies, and potentially overseas individuals. So many of you will be part of um, international groups of companies, potentially with US parents. And it's important to be aware that even in some circumstances, those US parents could also be liable under the Act. The Act also introduces very significant penalties. So for individuals, potentially up to 10 years in prison. For individuals and companies, unlimited fines. And the courts have indicated recently that for fines for bribery offences, they should be in the region of tens of millions of pounds. So very significant, substantial bribes. Another, um, sorry, substantial penalties. Another um, very important um, penalty is that they, the, one of the penalties will be the mandatory debarment from public contracts in the UK for active bribery offences. Now, it has been clarified that that won't apply in the case of passive bribery, so receiving bribes, or failure to prevent bribery offence. But if a company is convicted of actually bribing someone, whether in private sector or a foreign public official, then they will face mandatory debarment from public contracts in the EU. Now, if you're a public sector company, potentially fatal penalty. So just wanted to turn to look at the offences in a bit more detail. So starting off with the general offences of bribing or receiving bribes. So it's an offence under the Act to either offer or request an advantage, which within, in some way intending that that advantage, advantage will induce the improper performance of a relevant function. So just looking at some of those definitions in a bit more detail. Firstly, the relevant function. Relevant function covers um, not only functions in the public sector, but also functions um, in the private sector. So it covers, for example, acts in the course of business or acts in the course of your employment. <coughs> so it's very important to be aware that this offence doesn't just relate to the public sector, but does also relate to the private sector, bribery in a commercial context. So you need to have the improper performance of a relevant function. You need to intend to induce that to commit an offence under this section. An improper performance requires that the relevant function is performed in breach of trust or breach of a position of um, good faith or a requirement, an expectation that you'll act impartially. That, that expectation has been breached will be decided on the basis of what a reasonable person in the UK would think. So very much a UK-centric test. And the offence will catch individuals if any part of the Act takes place within the UK or if it takes place outside the UK but by a person with a close connection with the UK. And that covers British citizens and UK companies, for example. Moving on to the next offence, the bribery of a foreign public official offence. So for this offence, a person will be guilty if they offer some form of advantage to a foreign public official or to another person with the intention to influence that foreign public official in order to obtain business. So you can see here that the motive requirement is much lower than the previous general bribery offence. There's no requirement to intend to induce improper performance. You just need to show an intention to influence in order to obtain business. And this offence in particular has given rise to a lot of concern, particularly in relation to corporate hospitality. Because as you can see, it's quite easy to argue for corporate hospitality purposes that you are offering that hospitality in order to influence someone to obtain business. So Chris will be looking at that in a bit more detail later on. Then the um, jurisdiction scope of the offence is the same. 
So if any part of the offence takes place within the UK, the Act will apply, or if it takes place outside the UK, but by a person with a close connection with the UK. So, for example, again, British citizen or a UK company. So I just wanted to have a quick look at the way in which senior officers can be liable under the Act. So a senior officer will be guilty if their, their company commits a bribery offence. And this only applies to the general bribery offences, um, so either bribing or receiving bribes or bribing a foreign public official. Importantly, it does not apply to the corporate offence of failing to prevent bribery. So if your company has committed a bribery offence and that senior officer consents or connives in the bribery, then they themselves could find themselves, find themselves liable for an offence under the Act. So for example, if they're aware of the bribery and fail to take any steps to prevent it, that could well be a scenario where they're liable. And you'll see that senior officer is very widely defined, so it goes much further than just covering the board of directors. It also covers managers and similar officers, whatever exactly that means. So it's this offence that has given rise to the most discussion. The new corporate offence of failing to prevent bribery. So a relevant commercial organisation will be guilty of an offence if one of its associated persons bribes in order to obtain a business advantage or business for that organisation. Now there is a defence available of having adequate procedures in place to prevent bribery. If you don't have adequate procedures in place, then you will be guilty of an offence. Just turning to look at each of those elements of the offence in a bit more detail, because the definitions are very important to understanding the offence. So firstly, relevant commercial organisation. Now this is widely defined and this sets the jurisdictional scope of the offence. So it covers UK companies and it also covers any company, whether that's an overseas company, carrying on business or part of its business in the UK. So that's a crucial point to understand because that means that your overseas companies within the group could be liable under the Act if they are carrying on part of their business in the UK. Now, it's not clear, and we're going to have to wait for the courts to have a look at this, exactly what is meant by carrying on part of business in the UK. The government guidance has suggested that you need to have a demonstrable presence in the UK, and merely having a UK subsidiary or being listed, for example, won't be sufficient. But we will have to wait and see what the courts decide. And the recent SFO, um, recent, the head of the SFO, Richard Alderman, has recently suggested that actually where a company is listed in the UK, they may in some circumstances go ahead and prosecute under this offence. So still very uncertain. The other key definition is the definition of associated persons. So associated persons is widely defined as someone who performs services for the organisation. Now that will include employees, agents and subsidiaries, for example. But it could go much wider than that. It could cover joint venture partners, joint venture companies, it could cover contractors, subcontractors if they're performing services um, for the organisation. Likewise, suppliers if they're performing services for the organisation. And potentially some way down the supply chain. So if those organisations, those companies or persons are providing services to your company, then they could potentially render you liable for an offence under um, this section, even if you have very little control over them. So it's very important to be aware of that um, 
and to understand that and implement appropriate procedures, which we'll come on to. So it only, this offence only applies if an associated person bribes. It doesn't apply if an associated person receives bribes. So it's only active bribery that will catch this offence. So it's clearly important that you have adequate procedures in place. Now, what exactly are adequate procedures? Um, well, the government has issued guidance on adequate procedures, and Chris will be running through those in a bit more detail shortly. So finally, I just wanted to have a quick look at comparing the Bribery Act with the FCPA, the US equivalent of the Bribery Act, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Now, many of you will be part of um, international groups of companies, so you will be familiar with the FCPA. And we are finding that a lot of our clients, um, especially the US-based clients, have already got policies and procedures in place to deal with the FCPA. However, while go, they will go a long way to complying with the Bribery Act and making sure that you do have adequate procedures in place, there are differences between the Bribery Act and the FCPA, and it's important to understand those differences so that you can update your policies and procedures in the light of the Bribery Act to make sure you comply with both. So I'm not going to run through all the points on this slide, but just to pick out some of the key ones. So the Bribery Act, unlike the FCPA, covers commercial bribery. So as I said, in the private sector, even if there's no foreign public official involved, you can still be caught by the Bribery Act. The Bribery Act also covers receiving bribes, um, whereas the FCPA doesn't. So it's important to make sure that your policies deal with receiving bribes as well as giving bribes. Now, the FCPA doesn't have any equivalent of the corporate offence under the Bribery Act of failing to prevent bribery. But actually, there probably isn't such a huge difference here because under the US legislation or, or US law, it is much easier to successfully prosecute um, a US company than it is in the UK. So in the UK, to successfully prosecute a company, you have to show that the bribe was carried out by someone sufficiently senior who was the directing will or mind of the company. And that's quite often hard to do. So the reason that the UK has introduced this corporate offence is to try and bridge that gap and make sure that UK companies who don't take adequate steps to prevent bribery can still be held accountable. Just a couple of points to finish on this slide. Um, the FCPA has an exemption for facilitation payments. So facilitation payments are um, generally small payments to expedite routine government functions, such as getting through customs or immigration. There's no similar exemption under the Bribery Act, and that has given rise to a lot of discussion because um, in some circumstances, it's quite hard for companies to avoid paying facilitation payments. Now, while that has given rise to lots of discussion, in my view, it's not a particularly big deal because under the, bribery, under the existing UK law, as antiquated as it is, it still prohibits facilitation payments. So there's no change to what we're used to. And also, the exemption under the FCPA is generally considered restricted and unreliable. But still, just to be aware, when you're looking at your policies, if they do in any way permit facilitation payments, you'd need to update them for the Bribery Act. Likewise, the FCPA has a defence for reasonable and proportionate promotional expenses. There is no similar defence or exemption under the Bribery Act. And as I mentioned, it's that that has given rise to probably the most concern in terms of the new Act coming into force. Can companies fall foul of the Act through legitimate corporate hospitality? And so with that, I'll hand over to Chris to run you through that in a bit more detail.
Yeah, well, as Charles has mentioned, probably the, the two sort of hot topics arising out of the, the Bribery Act are promotional expenditure um, and to what extent that, that's going to be caught um, and um, the corporate offence of failing to permit bribery and what are adequate procedures so you can rely on that defence. So I'm going to look at, look at those in turn um, before we break for coffee. Dealing with the first, the corporate hospitality point, I suppose the, the starting point is um, that corporate hospitality in principle is caught by the, the Bribery Act. Um, that might be under the um, general bribery offence, um, providing an advantage uh, with the intention of inducing improper performance, or the bribery of a uh, foreign public official providing an advantage with the intention of inducing that individual to gain a business advantage. Um, now, the guidance from the government um, and the SFO says that the Act isn't intended to criminalise genuine um, corporate hospitality, which has the aim of um, improving an organisation's image or of better presenting that organisation's products or services or um, of establishing good relations, presumably meaning good relationships with clients and prospective clients, which is which is fine, but that is only a, a statement of guidance, and ultimately it is going to be up to the courts to decide where the line is line is drawn. Um, one can clearly think of examples at the extreme which are going to fall foul of the law. The money in the brown envelope situation is clearly going to be caught by bribery, but the the more difficult um, cases I think are what are causing people concern. For example, lavish corporate expenditure. The government guidance says the question you should be asking yourself is was the hospitality intended to influence a secure business? Which sounds fine, but actually I don't think that really gets us terribly far because, um, not wanting to be too cynical about it, but what purpose generally does corporate hospitality have other than to influence and secure business, whether it's repeat business from existing clients or, or new business from prospective clients? Um, the sub um, the sub-factors, the sub-categories of advice that the guidance gives are a little bit more helpful. So they say that the first thing you should be looking at is, is the level and type of hospitality. Uh, how lavish is the, is the hospitality? Um, and similarly, what are the, what are the norms within, within your sector? If your hospitality is consistent with what's normal in the sector, you're going to be on slightly safer ground than if it is disproportionate compared to, to sector norms. But the guidance goes on to say, with a, a useful caveat, that simply complying with sector norms isn't a guarantee that you're going to be safe from prosecution. Um, the other things you sh that the guidance says you can look at in terms of judging your hospitality is um, what's the level of influence of the recipient of the hospitality has got. Clearly if you're taking the janitor out for an, um, a, ni a nice day at the races that's less likely to fall foul of the, um, the offences under the Act than if you're taking out a key decision maker whether it's the CEO or a procurement officer something like that. Another factor is the timing. Are you taking people out immediately before a, uh, a contract is going to be awarded or is this part of an ongoing relationship? Um, and is there a connection between the event you're organising and um, a normal business meeting? Are you flying people in um, for a business meeting and chucking in a nice dinner or are you sending on them on an all-expenses-paid trip to a luxury chalet in uh, Verbier? Uh, and incidentally, if anyone wants to bribe me, that would uh, go down very nicely. Um, and then the last factor which the guidance mentions is um, transparency. 
and again, coming back to the, the idea of cash in a brown envelope, clearly that's the antithesis of, of transparency. Um, what you're looking for is not necessarily just taking out the, the key decision maker, but taking out a team, maybe taking out um, more than just one client at a time is, is what the guidance suggests and being being fairly open about, about what you're doing. The guidance also gives a couple of examples of, of what it considers will and won't cross, cross the line. Um, so for example, there is a suggestion that flying in a foreign public official um, to a meeting in New York um, for a meeting and putting them up in a nice hotel, take them, take them out for, for dinner, something like that, um, will probably be okay if New York is a logical place to meet, um, but not, for example, if actually you had already met them a week ago um, and you, you could have dealt with your, your business there. And similarly, on the other side of the line, sending someone on a, on a luxury um, five-star holiday is probably going to, going to cross the line and amount to bribery. So that's what the guidance says. Um, but of course, as I say, um, ultimately we're going to have to wait for the courts to see how the, how the courts interpret this. So that's corporate hospitality. I guess um, from an organisational perspective, the corporate hospitality issue only really kicks in if um, the corporate offence of failing to prevent bribery is engaged. Um, and as Charlotte has already explained, um, there will be a defence um, to the corporate offence if an organisation can show that it has adequate procedures in place to prevent bribery. Um, the corporate offence, again as Charlotte has said, it is potentially pretty wide ranging because it's failure to prevent bribery by a person associated with the organisation and the idea of associated person is defined pretty widely, it will encompass employees, contractors and all sorts of organisations like, like suppliers. Um, again there is um, guidance on what um, adequate procedures are and it encompasses these, these six concepts um, which I've set out on the slide. The guidance is, is generic rather than prescriptive so it doesn't give you boxes which you can tick um, but gives you points which you should be thinking about. I guess the overarching principle in the guidance is proportionate procedures. So that's going to involve taking a look at um, how much of a risk is there of bribery in um, arising within your organisation or in connection with your organisation, um, what sort of sectors you work in, what sort of countries you're doing business in, um, and then looking at what sort of resources your organisation is in a position to commit to prevent bribery. Um, and what's going to be proportionate is going to be different um, for a small organisation than it is for a, a multinational organisation. When the guidance talks about procedures, I think it's got two things in mind. Uh, the first thing is is written policies. Um, so some policies, policy saying this is what um, we expect of people, this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do, um, and a written statement that we have a commitment um, to preventing bribery. Um, as a general principle, I think if you're putting policies in place or if you're reviewing your policies, it's a really good idea to, to illustrate those with examples because it makes them a lot more workable. The second side of procedures, um, I think, is, is process. So what processes do you have in place to ensure that the procedures are more than just um, a, a wish list on a bit of paper? So, for example, do you have procedures whereby you monitor people's expenses um, do you have any kind of sort of financial auditing, auditing processes so you can see if money's been spent before contracts have been won? 
um, what processes do you have in place for decision making? Who makes decisions about um, corporate expenses? Do you have any kind of cross-checking processes so someone else can has to sign off on, on high levels of expenses, that kind of thing? Uh, the second concept in the guidance, top-level commitments, pretty self-explanatory. The, the, the government is looking for buy-in at a high level from companies. What that probably means in practice is having someone pretty senior, a senior manager or someone on the board who has responsibility for um, anti-bribery procedures, um, who is communicating those with companies here and who's ensuring that, that they're implemented. The third point mentioned in the guidance is, is in a sense, um, probably the first one that you're actually going to look at in, in practice, it's risk assessment because deciding what you're going to do is actually all going to flow from, from how high you perceive the risk to be within your organisation. And I think there are two sides of the risk assessments, internal and external risk. Um, so external risk means things like um, what sort of um, countries you're doing business in. Are you doing a lot of business in countries where um, corruption and bribery is perceived to be high and where perhaps the rule of law isn't as strong as it is in certain other countries? Um, are you in sectors where there is perceived to be a high risk of bribery? Uh, the guidance suggests that sectors such as um, big infrastructure projects or extraction work, there, are, there is a high risk of bribery. Is there a particular risk in, in transactions? Do you have transactions where you need a lot of public licenses? Um, or do your business structures present a lot of risk? Do you um, work with a lot of contractors, i.e. a lot of associated persons um, for whom you could be liable? Um, so those are the sorts of things in terms of external risks. In terms of internal risks, it's um, things like um, do you have a lack of oversight, lack of clarity in terms of how individual salespeople, procuring people do business? Um, do you have a lack of oversight of expenses? Um, does your remuneration structure encourage um, risk taking because you pay people a very low base salary and a lot of commission so that they need to they need to do a lot of business to earn a decent salary um, or is there just generally um, a culture of risk taking in the organisation so those are sort of internal factors to be looking at in your risk assessment. Following on I guess from your, your risk assessment the next consideration is, is due diligence. Um, that's primarily going to be due diligence of, of associated persons um, some internal due diligence in relation to employees and processes but um, more external due diligence in terms of the parties you're, you're working with, contracting with. Again, your due diligence is going to be proportionate to the risk as you perceive it, taking account of, of the type of business you do. Um, communication and training, as always, it's not good enough to just have your policies and let them gather dust in, in the drawer. You need to make sure that employees are aware of them um, and potentially external contractors are aware of them uh, and not just send them out on an email it's probably going to be appropriate to, to train key people, um, certainly you, your senior salespeople or senior procurement people on the policies so they actually understand their obligations. And then similarly, um, you can't just do this once and decide it's, it's done with. It's, it's an ongoing process. There needs to be a periodic review of your bribery procedures. Um, because the business may change, you may focus on different sectors, you may go into different countries, different markets, or the risk within the existing countries and sectors may change, or the associated persons you're working with may change. So you need to be reviewing this periodically to ensure your, your procedures and processes are working. Um, and you might be thinking about sort of some kind of annual audit process, something like, something like that.
So in practical terms, what are the sort of the key takeaways um, from a client compliance perspective? Again, I've sort of, I split this into sort of external and internal risks. Um, as you'll have appreciated by now, um, there are potential risks arising for any kind of commercial contract you enter into, because potentially any kind of con commercial contract party is going to um, amount to an associated person if it's a distributor or a subcontractor or an agent or a supplier. So at a basic level, you could be liable for the offence of failure to prevent bribery. Um, one thing I think we're going to have to see teased out by the courts is whether they accept that there is going to be a lower level of um, responsibility and um, lower level of adequate procedures expected the further along um, the corporate chain you get from, from your own company. I, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see how that, that pans out. Um, it may be that the courts will, will not cut companies a lot of slack because they'll see that as, as a, a clever way of avoiding the act. But that, that's certainly a factor to think about how far down the supply chain do you, do you have to go in ensuring adequate procedures. Um, similarly, if you're involved in any kind of acquisition or joint venture, um, there are also going to be uh, risks um, if you're looking at an acquisition and there's a bribery issue that might reduce the value of the target. They might lose their ability to um, contract for public sector work. There might be a cost of remedial action. So what in practice are you going to do to deal with these risks? Well, uh, we've already talked about risk assessments and due diligence, um, but you might be looking at putting terms in your contract warranties that um, the contracting party or your joint venture partner has um, adequate entry bribery procedures in place and it complies with these and warranties that it's not subject to any current investigations and um, that it hasn't committed any um, offences under the Act and none of its associated parties have com committed any offences under the Act. Um, with contracting parties you might want a right to, to audit them and to, um, to terminate contractual relationships for, for serious breach. Um, you might want to have some, some power of veto, some right to look at who um, your contracting parties subcontract to and, and a power of veto. Um, and because of all of this, you should be looking at your, your standard form due diligence checklist and contracts to make sure they cover these types of issues. In terms of um, internal um, key sort of processes, you need to be making sure your, your policies are up to date to reflect the, the new legislation requirements. So you need to make sure if you haven't got one already, you've got some kind of policy, um, a code of conduct, code of good business ethics that covers bribery, gifts, hospitality, that kind of thing. Um, and the sorts of things that policy is going to cover are um, a general statement of policy, the process for organising hospitality, guidance about um, how much money you're spending on hospitality, about who approves hospitality, some statements about sort of bookkeeping and auditing, um, some statements about risk assessment of associated persons, a statement of who has oversight of the policy um, and, and something about contractual terms with your associated persons. You also need to be ensuring you're putting in place training to make sure that the policies are communicated and that key staff are aware of the policies. You also need to look at your remuneration structures or, or your senior sales staff um, remunerated in a way which, which perhaps encourages um, bribery. Look at your management structures. Do you have oversight of, of salespeople, procurement people, so that you're in a position to, to ensure that this doesn't happen? Um, look at your disciplinary policy so that um, 
this is specifically mentioned and the staff are aware that this is potentially a serious um, disciplinary matter and I guess the other policy to look at is um, your whistleblowing policy and encouraging um, employees to report um, any suspicions of, of bribery in a way which assures them that they're not going to um, suffer uh, any sanction if there is a genuine good faith report. Um, before we break for coffee um, would, I just thought we would run through the, the case study which, which focuses on corporate hospitality um, because that does seem to be the, the issue that really concerns people. So we're looking at a, a situation where the Swiss government is building a new railway line through the Alps. It's awarded the main contract, the head contract to Thomas Railways Limited, who we're going to call Tomco. And Tomco wants to subcontract part of the contract um, as it doesn't have the expertise to bore tunnels through the mountains to the Bob the Build Company, Bobco. Um, Bob, Bobco's in the frame for the, frame for the subcontract. Wendy, who works for Bobco's head of sales, decides she needs to bring the key players into London. So she flies in a senior official uh, from the Swiss government, Mr. Koosh, business class, and she arranges a limo to collect Mr. Gordon from his house in Buckinghamshire and puts them up in posh accommodation at Claridge's. For entertainment, she arranges a private visit to the Transport Museum for them by dinner at the Ivy. Um, we're told that Bobco is aware of this concept of um, anti-bribery laws but doesn't really have a lot in its policies, just has a code of conduct that effectively, essentially says thou shalt not bribe. So the questions for consideration are, are either Wendy individually or Bobco as an organisation at risk of committing an offence because of um, the entertainment and sale that Wendy's arranged and do your thoughts differ in relation to um, Mr Koosh and Mr Gordon and would it make a difference if the entertainment had been less lavish or if the contract has already been awarded. Would the position differ if Wendy um, was a sales executive engaged as a consultant rather than an employee? And then the last question, what if Bobco decides that Wendy's gone a bit too far in her attempts to win this contract? Can it dismiss Wendy? What are the risks in doing so? What are the sorts of things you should be thinking about?